If you're not there already, you can turn to the book of Leviticus. If you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Leviticus. Find ourselves all the way in chapter 24. We finished chapter 23 last week, covering all the different uh, holidays uh, that the Lord gave through Moses. Now we find ourselves in Leviticus 24. For those interested, there's 27 chapters in the book of Leviticus, so we are on the tail end of the series. I hope you've enjoyed it almost as much as I've enjoyed it. Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 1, says, Then Yahweh, this is page 172, as Pastor Dale mentioned, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they... Bring to you the clear oil from the beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep, in, keep it in order from evening to morning before Yahweh continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on, pure gold, on, on the pure gold lampstand before Yahweh continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before Yahweh. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day, he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the offerings to Yahweh by fire, his portion forever. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask him for help. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us from your word. Give us understanding into what these ancient words meant thousands of years ago when Moses penned them and what they mean for us today. Give us teachable hearts ready and willing to receive your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever hear a song perhaps on the radio or maybe one of your children listening to it or maybe you're out and about and you're listening to this song and it sounds strangely familiar? It's a new song. You can tell by the music. But it sounds like an old song. And then you realize your age. And you recall that song way back in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. That now has been redone for today. A remix as they call it. Or perhaps you 
observe certain clothing styles or even hairstyles that when you were young were popular. And notice recently the large glasses are in that cover half your face. I couldn't remember my dad wearing those, gla- those sunglasses in the 1980s. I can remember the first Top Gun in which they wore those glasses. And now again, the second Top Gun. The remix. Well, the tabernacle was something of a remix. It was a remix that was strangely familiar that went all the way back to Eden. We've mentioned this in the past and it comes to the forefront in our discussion this morning of Leviticus chapter 24. You see, way back in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, remember, of course, there was the cherubim with flaming swords who were protecting the way back to the garden. And sure enough, what do we see in the design of the tabernacle? But cherubim on the entry points of the curtain, cherubim also at the Ark of the Covenant. We also see representation in the Garden of Eden, specifically through Adam as the representative of humanity. We see representation in the tabernacle. We see the priests who represented God's people and that high priest who once a year would go into the Holy of Holies as a representative to offer sacrifice for God's people. There's many other similarities with the remix of the tabernacle that we can touch on, but one more that we see most clearly that is at the forefront of our passage this morning is a tree. A tree. Of course, in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life, and there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there may have been other trees Because God does, after all, say you can eat from any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat from it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And sure enough, in the tabernacle, there's a tree. You say, I didn't know there was a tree in the tabernacle. Well, it's the lampstand. The lampstand was to be crafted in the form of a tree. And so we're going to look at two ancient symbols that uh, should motivate us to be serving the Lord. The first of these symbols I'm calling the brightness that God provides. And and by the way, just a little bit by way of review, we, we talked about those different holy days in Leviticus chapter 23 And now (laughs) this section in Leviticus 24 is dealing with the more the day-to-day activities that were to be going on in the tabernacle. And specifically this first, the the brightness that he provides, we see beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they may bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. So notice, first of all, Moses is told by Yahweh to speak 
And here in verse 2, it says, command the sons of Israel. And almost every other time that we see this phrase that, uh, that Yahweh said, spoke to Moses, telling him to, it's usually speak to the sons of Israel or speak to the sons of Aaron. But here is a, a stronger word to command them. That there's certain obligations that are now involved for all of God's ancient people to be involved in. And this is specifically laid out. They were responsible, all of God's people, to bring oil. Not just any oil, pure oil. This would have been the kind of the first product of the mashing of oil, a mashing of olives, I'm sorry, to produce the oil that was needful for the burning of this lamp in the tabernacle. This was pure oil, oil that would be fit for a king. We say, hmm, why was there need for a lamp in the tabernacle? Well, if you remember the construction of the tabernacle, which was, it was not a huge tent, but, but basically you had two different sections of the tabernacle. You had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place. And there was a curtain going in to the holy place, and there was a curtain going in to the holy of holies, and then there would have been curtains all around. Noticeably, no windows, okay? So we have a, a wall of windows over here that light comes in, right? But imagine if this was a complete wall without any windows, then this room would be almost completely dark. And so if you went into, the, uh, into the, the tabernacle, it would have been completely dark. This is why there was a very practical need for a lamp. Verse 3, outside, outside the veil of testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening till morning before Yahweh continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So outside the veil of testimony, so this second curtain, it's called the veil of testimony because behind this veil, behind this curtain, was the testimony, namely the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, along with Aaron's staff and I think there was some manna in there as well. And so it's called the, the Veil of Testimony. So right before the entry point into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided, where God was symbolically dwelling with his people, there was to be a lamp. And notice again, this is the second time this word is repeated, and it's re repeated a handful of times throughout this section, but continually, from evening to morning. So while all the Israelites had a hand in bringing the oil, the priests, the sons of Aaron, their job was to make sure it stayed lit. Verse 4, he shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. So this lamp was to be lit 
regularly. It was to be an ongoing light inside the tabernacle. There's more instructions that are given in the book of Exodus. It comes up a couple times. One, uh, I think in chapter 28, where instructions are given, and then the implementation of the actual construction of the lampstand is given in Exodus 37, verse 17 and following. You might want to turn there. could be helpful if you have nimble fingers. It's just one book to the left of Leviticus. You won't get too lost. Exodus chapter 37, verse 17. It says, Then he made the lampstand of pure gold. So, we have Bezalel and Aholiab. These are the, the skilled craftsmen involved in the makings of the tabernacle and the holy hardware that was in the tabernacle. This lampstand was to be made, as we saw also in Leviticus, of pure gold, which, by the way, it was a talent of gold, which is roughly somewhere between 70 and 90 pounds of gold. So by today's standards of value of gold, this was a very expensive piece of hardware. It's no wonder that when the Romans, when Titus Vespasian in 70 AD came and destroyed the temple, they took the, uh, the, the uh, lampstand with them, okay, amongst other things. In fact, that archaeologists found that actual lampstand that was taken in 70 AD. Now, whether it was exactly like the lampstand that is instructed to be crafted here, we, we can't say for sure. But it's pure gold. He hammered the lamps, the, the, he made the lampstand of hammered work. It shall be its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers were of the same piece. There were six branches going out of its side, so three on each side, three branches of the lampstand from the one side of it, three branches of the lampstand on the other side of it, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, and a cup and a, and a flower in the other branch. So for the six branches coming out of the lampstand, in the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers, and the bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and the bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it. For the six branches coming out of the lampstand, their bulb and the branches were one piece with it. The whole was a single hammered work of pure gold. He made it seven lamps with its tongs and its tray of pure gold. So what do we have here? We have the language of bulbs, flowers, almond blossoms, branches. This is why I say this was a tree. A tree that was on fire. A tree that functioned like a lamp lighting the way to Yahweh. Again, a remix of the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. A symbol of life inside of Eden. A symbol of God dwelling with man. 
Trumper Longman says, a tree like menorah reminds us of the Garden of Eden and so represents the presence of God on earth. Heavenly and Edenic imagery thus permeated the tabernacle. And also, by the way, where else do we see vegetation on fire in Torah? The burning bush, right? Exodus chapter 3. When God appears to Moses at the burning bush. And, and also, by the way, how does God describe himself? I am that I am. Hold that thought. Also, when we fast forward in the Old Testament, there's another large section where there's a vision of a lampstand, and it comes much later in Israel's history. After the time of exile, they're coming back into the land, and it's the prophet Zechariah who mentions a vision of a lampstand. It's in Zechariah chapter 4, <coughs> beginning in verse 1. It says, Then an angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man roused from his sleep. And he said, What do you see? I see, behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps with its uh, seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it. One on the right side and a bowl on, on, the, uh, on its left. Verse 4, then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Verse 6, then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. And so the answer comes uh, about this, again, a vision of a lampstand. And now there's two olive trees supplying. So it's almost like an endless supply of olive oil to feed these lamps. And when Zechariah questions the answer is, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit is often uh, symbolized with oil. Both in the Old and the New Testaments. And then, of course, when we get to the New Testament. Remember I mentioned last week with the Feast of Tabernacles? That... Not only was there a water libation ceremony, a pouring out of water with, you know, uh, this great festivity, drawing water from the pool of Siloam and then pouring it out over the burnt offering at the altar, but there was also a candle lighting, a menorah, a lampstand lighting ceremony. And it's within that context that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 18, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And so, so it's no wonder that by the time we come to the New Testament, Jesus himself identifies himself because he's so closely associated with the lampstand, which is the way of life with God. The way back to Eden. The way back to God dwelling with man. Again, isn't this how the Gospel of John starts out? In John 1.14, And the Word became flesh, and what? Tabernacled among us. So, Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient holy hardware. A picture of how God can dwell with man and how man can dwell with God. How man can enter into the presence of a holy God. It comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my friend, do you know this way back to God? It is As the psalmist says, in his light that we see light. It is only in the light that God provides in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can see clearly the way back to God is indeed through the Lord Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And so we go back to God through the light of life, which is Jesus. But it's also interesting that Jesus isn't the only one who's called the light of the world in the New Testament. Almost shockingly, Jesus himself says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, You are the light. Of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's almost a sense in which if the scripture didn't tell us, we might think it's blasphemous to call ourselves the light of the world. But the scripture says that you are the light of the world. Jesus himself, who declared himself the light of the world, says to his people, you are the light of the world, so what gives? Well, of course, we do not have life-giving properties like the Lord Jesus does. But as we reflect his light we can show the way back to God. As we speak the light of truth in the lives of others, as our lives shine before men, we can point others back to God in this fallen world. And so it's no wonder that when we get to the last book of the Bible, with all that imagery that John uses in the book of Revelation, there's so much imagery that comes from the Torah, from those first five books. And one of them is lampstands, right? In Revelation chapter 2, the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, walks 
amongst the churches which are called what? Lampstands. Now listen to Revelation chapter 2. To the angel in the church in Ephesus, this is what the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot bear with those who are evil and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have, not, and have endured for my name's sake. You also have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if you do not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Did you notice all the Edenic and tabernacle-ish imagery there? And so the churches were to be lampstands. Shining the light of Christ to this dark and fallen world. Under the threat that if you do not do what I say, I will remove your lampstand. I will blow the light out. And you will be in the darkness like the rest of the world. And sadly, evidently, that must be what happened to these churches of Asia Minor. Because I've never heard of the first church of First Baptist of Laodicea. First Presbyterian of Ephesus. They, in fact, most of Asia Minor is actually modern day Turkey. Blanketed by the diabolical lies of Islam. Because the church failed to heed the call to be a light to the world and to align its life with the message of the gospel, Jesus blew it out and took the lampstand away. And so, my friend, we need to be living lives that are consistent with the light of Christ, shining the light back to him. Our own lives, Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your, God, your Father in heaven. What kind of light are you shining? What kind of message are you communicating with your life? Is your life a wall to Christ or is it a way to Christ? Is it a wall that is an obstacle a hindrance to others around you because they don't see anything Christ-like in you or attractive that would make them want to become a Christian? Or is there something compelling as you bear the fruit, as you're connected to the vine that is compelling because you're shining the light of Christ 
in your own life. Also, there's much application here as far as serving. Remember, it was in verse 1 of Leviticus 24, or I'm sorry, verse 2, command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light. Now, I, I don't know what the process is of beating olives. I don't know if it's like grapes where you're, you know, stomping and, and you know, taking the, the, the liquid product of the olives I'd imagine it was something like that. But, but it's, it's a seemingly mundane task, right? I mean, you could just imagine, you know, maybe a, a father with several of his children out squishing olives or, or doing whatever's needful. And the boy says, Dad, what's this for? We're making pure oil to light up the lamp in the tabernacle. For the priests. And this is a picture of the way back to God. As that lamp was a picture of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And so, in a similar way, in the temple today, the house of God today, which is the imagery that's used for the church, as we are united to the one who is the temple the Lord Jesus. We can be about the business of performing seemingly mundane tasks. Taking out trash. Gathering up sticks. Mowing the lawn. All in service, participating for the light of Christ to shine brighter. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Peter writes, For each one has received a gift. I'm sorry, as each one has received a gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to speak as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving in the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter says, whatever gift you have, use it. Whether it's a serving gift or whether it's a speaking gift, employ it, put it into service for one another, ultimately that the light of the glory of God would shine in Christ's church. And so we are all to be involved. Some of you who are at the retreat remember me using the illustration of professional sports, right? football game there's 22 men down on the field working their butts off there's 80 90 100,000 overweight out of shape hot dog scarfing beer guzzling people in the stands doing nothing but sitting there 
all too often. It's a picture of what happens in the church. Where there's a lot of fans all around. Not enough people in the game. But the light of Christ should motivate us to serve in the game. But secondly, not only the light that he provides, the bread that he provides. Notice verse 5. We're in Leviticus 24, in case you got lost along the way. Page 172 in the church Bible. It says, then you shall take, and again, this was the daily order of the tabernacle. The lights had to be on, right? You, could, you weren't going to see. You know, you weren't going to pull out your smartphone, you know, to see where's the altar at. You know, turn that little light on your, your phone. No. And so now, here's this bread. Notice verse 5. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on, on the pure gold table before Yahweh, and you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to Yahweh. Then verse 8. Every Sabbath day it shall be set before Yahweh continually. There's our word continually again. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. What's going on here? Well, this is sometimes called the showbread. I think that was uh, William Tyndale's brainchild when he translated one of the early English translations calling it showbread. Sometimes it's called the bread of presence because this is the bread that's in the very presence of Yahweh. It's to be made, instructions are given here as far as the making of it. It's to be made of fine flour, baked 12 cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And so these were probably uh, like unleavened bread, uh, probably in a circular fashion here, and they were to be stacked in two rows. Did we have a picture of the bread? They were to be stacked in two rows, and this was to be on pure gold table before Yahweh. Now, there's two rows of six here. What might that speak of? Probably, almost certainly, representative of another 12 that we see come up over and over. The 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob, you remember, that become the different tribes in Israel. And so here, this bread is to be provided, which, by the way, again, almost certainly each Israelite, as they brought the grain offerings to the priests, it would have been the priests who would have taken the grain offerings and used some of that grain for the baking of these loaves of bread. And this 
was to be a picture. A picture of what? Well, a picture, no doubt, of God providing for his people. Just like for 40 years he had provided the manna from heaven for his people, that God was going to continue to provide for his people. It also, no doubt, was a a picture of fellowship and communion with God. That this was God himself inviting his people to sup with him. We also see some of the particulars of this. That this bread, so that it didn't get nasty and moldy, like the bread I give to my chickens... This bread was to be always fresh bread. Fresh bread. It had a seven-day shelf life. And at the end of each seven-day period, the priests were to consume that bread, and it had to be within the confines of the tabernacle. I don't know how many priests, you know, sounds like a joke. How many priests does it take to eat 12 loaves of bread? I don't know how many priests it would take to eat all these 12 loaves of bread, but they had to be consumed. And then there was the fresh bread was to be brought out. And this was to happen every Sabbath. Every seventh day of the week, fresh bread was to be brought out. In fact, Andrew Bonar, the Scottish Presbyterian, he picks up on this imagery and he says, it was renewed weekly. It thus never molded. It was fresh at all times. For so is the antitype ever fresh to us. As truly as in apostolic days. He never waxes old. His food never molds. You may get the same joy in believing on him. The same peace. The same assurance that were found in apostolic days. And may be moved with the same love and zeal and holiness. By feeding on the same primitive food. And yet more. It will be on the morning of the Sabbath. The 7,000th year on the earth. That he shall set gloriously his people in full fresh fullness. Now. He gets a little weird at the end there with his eschatological expectations, but you get the point. As that fresh bread was brought out every Sabbath, and so there is a freshness to the anti-type. What's the anti-type? Well, he's using language that these Old Testament rituals were types, shadows, pictures that point to a greater reality. And... As we have been seeing with all the different imagery of the tabernacle, it continues to point us to Jesus. Because just as the bread, these 12 loaves, represented God's provision for his people in the wilderness, it's it's the provision for his people in the wilderness that Jesus most explicitly states in John chapter 6 that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. That he says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes upon me will never thirst. Jesus declaring that he is the provision that God provides to meet your greatest spiritual need. And just 
as the flour had to be grounded and pounded and crushed, so, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to crush him, setting him to grief so that he would become a guilt offering for us. That the Lord Jesus suspended between heaven and earth was crushed so that he could give that offer of full salvation, full forgiveness of sin, meeting any sinner in the greatest spiritual need as the bread of life, the bread that produces life. So my friend, if you've not come to Jesus, come to him. He offers it freely. He offers life freely. You don't have to clean up your life to get ready for Jesus. No, come to him. Come to him as you are. Yes, you must repent. You must flee from rebellion and turn to Christ. But he will clean you up. He will make all things right. And so... What do we see here? Just like well, let me get to one other New Testament passage. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, there's a situation here in which the bread of presence is going to be referred to, or at least time in which the bread of presence was eaten. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1 it says, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. So you can imagine where this is going. Matthew's already set it up. It's Sabbath. They're grabbing some snacks. You remember how, how um, God had instructed the Israelites to not harvest the edges of the field. So, th- so these were uh, for the picking, especially for those who were in poverty. And so they're, they're grabbing these heads of grain along the way. And verse 2 All of a sudden, the camera zeroes in on the Pharisees. And you can just see the scowls on their face. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Sabbath breakers! Well, why are they called Sabbath breakers? Well, God had given instructions to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. For six days you shall work, but on the seventh day... You're what? You're not to work. You're to rest. Well, the Pharisees in rabbinical tradition up until this time in which Jesus is is here with his disciples had done what's called fencing of the law, which means they added all these rules and instructions related to what does it actually mean to rest on the Sabbath and what would you have to do to break that command to rest on the Sabbath. And so they came up with the idea, any kind of 
picking of fruit or grabbing of grain, even if it was just a snack, was considered harvesting on the Sabbath and was violating the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are wagging their finger at Jesus and his disciples, calling Jesus and his disciples Sabbath breakers. Verse 3. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions. How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So Jesus brings up an account in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel, towards the end of 1 Samuel, around chapter 20-ish. Don't hold me to that, but somewhere around there. It was in Nob. David and his men are on the run. Remember, they're being hunted by Saul, King Saul. And they're starving. And they have no food. Okay? And David asks the priests at Nob if they can eat this special bread, the same bread that we see in Leviticus chapter 24, which was only reserved for the priests. And do you remember what the priest did? The priest let them eat. And they ate the bread. And so what's going on here is Jesus is saying, there was a time in which the priests, who their role was the interpretation of the law, Allowed for starving people to partake bread that was normally reserved only for the priest. Verse 5, Matthew 12. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Oh, by the way, did you know the priests work on the Sabbath? Evidently they had to, right? Because we, we saw the priests had to be involved with, the, with continuing to bring oil to light the lamps in the, the tabernacle. They had to be involved with the, the changing of the bread, you know, taking the new bread, putting it in. It was probably baked that morning on the Sabbath, and it was freshly brought there. And then the old bread had to be eaten. In other words, it's the priest who had the right and the authority as the interpreter of the law. And then Jesus drops a bomb in their lap. Verse 6. But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Yikes. What Jesus is saying here is the one who is greater than all of that, the priesthood, the temple, which was later after the tabernacle was a more permanent structure, is here. In other words, if the priests in the Old Testament had the ability to rightly interpret the law and in a sense have some kinds of exceptions related to the law, how much more the one who is greater than the temple who's talking to you. In other words, again, we see here that Jesus himself becomes the fulfillment of all these pictures 
and all the ritual and all the ceremony because he's greater than it all because he's the reality to which those old rituals pointed to, including the Sabbath itself. He is the rest, as he declares at the end of this chapter, by the way. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you the rest. I will give you the Sabbath rest. Herein you can dwell. Herein you can come back to your creator through me. And so what do we have going on here? We have, as you read the whole storyline of the Bible, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of not only the tabernacle, all the hardware involved in the tabernacle, so many of the pictures, they all terminate with the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is a picture. It's a picture of God welcoming sinners to himself to have fellowship. In the words of one commentator, if the lights are on and the table is set... What do you expect? If the lights are on and the table is set, God is saying, come and eat. The door is open. The way back to me is here. God was saying it in the the pictures and shadows of the Old Testament, and he says it, in the person of the Lord Jesus when he himself declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes upon me will never thirst. And my friend, what a beautiful picture God has given us in this bread of presence. Because what, I mean, something that transcends every culture doesn't matter whether you're Native American, Asian American, Chinese, European, Irish, South American. When you sit down and have a meal with somebody, there's something special and unique about it. We call it table fellowship. It's one thing to have a conversation in passing. It's one thing to have a coworker where you may communicate with regularly. It's another thing to have somebody across the table from you and you're both eating. There is a relationship there. That's taking it to the next level, right? And this is what God is welcoming his people to. In fact, notice the language here in verse 9. We're back in Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, 9. And it shall be for Aaron and for his sons, and they shall keep it in a holy place, and it is most holy to him from the offerings to Yahweh by fire, his portion forever. And then verse 8. 
This is what I was driving at. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. The, the, the regular keeping of the Sabbath and the showbread that was part of that ceremony with the changing out of the old with the new was a perpetual reminder of God's covenant relationship with his people. Now, again, we are not under that Mosaic covenant, according to the author of Hebrews, that it has passed away. We are new covenant believers. But the old covenant pointed to and in many ways was morphed into the new covenant. So that while we don't practice those types and ceremonies and rituals, we do feast with Jesus. In fact, I mentioned the letters to the churches church in Laodicea it's the one who walks among the lampstands who knocks on the door and says open up in Revelation 3.20 you remember the verse and anyone who opens and welcomes Jesus in he says and he promises I will sup with him I will eat with him. This great God of the covenant promises who fulfills his side of the covenant agreement and ours as well, who takes the covenant curses upon himself for Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so Jesus upholds his end of the covenant agreement and our end and welcomes sinners to come and enjoy. Friend, how is your fellowship with Jesus lately? Has sin come between you and him? Sin that needs to be confessed, sin that keeps you from the table with him. He's waiting for you. The table's set. The light's on. He's calling you to come back to him. He knows what you did. He knows what you've been doing. And he's willing to forgive. Have you grown cold to hearing his voice as he speaks to you from the scriptures? Have you grown cold in conversing him around the table through prayer? These are the dynamics of his relationship with you. Again, he's at the door. If anyone opens up, come. He'll come in and he'll eat with you. It's no wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ when he is speaking of the kingdom he speaks in parabolic form and he says in Luke chapter 14 a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. 
And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, come, for everything is ready now. But they all like began to make excuses. The first one said, I've, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please, I ask you, consider me excused. Another one said, I, I've bought five yoke of oxen and, and I'm going to try them out. Please, I ask you, consider me excused. And another said, uh, I, I've married a wife and for that reason I, I, I can't come. My wife, my wife won't let me. And when the slave came back, he reported these things to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to a slave, go out at once into the streets in the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, master, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the fences and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled for I tell you none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner and so my friend I compel you to come in the lights on and the table is set let's pray Lord God Almighty we thank you for these ancient pictures that point to beautiful and glorious realities that we mere sinful creatures can enter into fellowship with you. Oh Lord, may we go back to you through the light that you provide and the bread that you provide in the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.